You are listening to Radio Maria Canada. We now present the Health Hub, hosted by Kathy Biasi. Good morning, everyone, and welcome to the Health Hub. I'm Kathy Biasa, your host, and along with our producer, Alex Diaz. Welcome to our show this morning. Good morning, Alex. Yes, good morning, Kathy, and good morning to our listeners. Did you have a good week? I did. It was um, very, um, I would say, I, I learned a lot about myself. <laughs> <laughs> um, usually, I've I've been fortunate to be able to um, get a ride into work for most most days, um, but unfortunately, my, the vehicle that I usually uh, drive in with is in the shop at the moment. And um, I haven't been able to obviously drive in, so I've been um, commuting. And I've been forcing myself to go to sleep early enough that I can wake up early enough to be here for Nine, nine o'clock in the morning most days. Well, I think a few weeks ago, we were so scared stiff about landing in here 10 minutes after the studio I, time I, that we're both a little bit more adhering to an earlier schedule when Tuesdays roll around. Exactly. I think we're, for me, it, it was a big eye opener. It was right? a big eye opener for me too. I think when the winter rolls around, I'll be leaving at 830 in the morning to get here. <laughs> Our show today is live. You can call us at 416-245-1534. Please do follow us on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook at the Health Hub RMC. And as always, feel free to email us at thh at radiomaria.ca. All of our shows are flipped over into a podcast, and you can find them on iTunes, SoundCloud, all the podcast uh, platforms that you enjoy to use. And you can also find our podcast directly on the Radio Maria Canada website at www.radiomaria.ca and on my website at kathybiasse.com. And if you like what you hear, please feel free to leave us a kind word. We're always looking to spread the, the word of all the wonderful guests that we have on the show, and we just keep rolling out Great guests every week, and we are very thankful and blessed that these people uh, come to our show and and spend you know it's an hour with us shedding light on on their their great levels of expertise. Our show last week with Chris Lim is up. Uh, can Mediterranean diet reduce the effects of air pollution? It was quite interesting. Um, had a lot of people listen to it already. So if that's a topic that interests you, then please do take a listen. We have a lot to cover over the next hour, and I don't want to cut into too much of the time, but I do want, it's come up a, a couple of times, and a few people have asked me about um, not so much post-workout eating, because that's not my my true area of expertise, and there are so many different um, so many different studies, but some things that one thing that is asked a lot, and one thing that is actually quite common to me is not having to have a protein shake after you work out. They're not my favorite, um, and they take a little time. And usually, I'm rushing in and and rushing out. So, what I thought um, 
I do is just give you a quick little recipe. Protein is important to consume after you work out because as you exercise, you're causing small, tiny muscle fibers to tear and they, they break down. But that's the point of exercise. They break down, they heal, they strengthen, and they, they get larger. Um, and protein helps to repair basically their, their in, injured muscles, if you want to call them that. But um, you also do need carbohydrates. And we, you know, a lot of people focus so strongly on the protein aspect of post-workout nutrition. But you do need to consume very good carbohydrates, complex carbohydrates, um, but good, good and absorbable, quickly absorbable. Because as you're exercising, your body's glycogen stores are being used as fuel for energy for your exercise. So consuming carbs after your workout helps to replenish them. So both protein and carbs are important, but I found this recipe from tgipaleo.com. I love it. My kids love it. It's for protein pancakes. And this is a, a one to two serving portions that I'll give you. And it's three tablespoons of coconut flour, a quarter teaspoon of baking powder, one scoop of vanilla protein. Um, I like to use whey protein powder. I find that whey protein is very easily um, absorbed for me. But if you are not into dairy, you can certainly use a plant-based uh, three eggs and one quarter to one third of a cup of your favorite milk, almond milk or coconut milk, hemp milk. And then you just whisk everything together and you make pancakes and they're delicious and quite a nice alternative from a protein shake. So there you go. A little bit of something for you. Thanks, now, Kathy. You're very welcome. I, I needed that. I'm, I'm always looking to um, motivate myself either exercise, but uh, having the um, alternative to the protein shake yeah. is, uh, is you can have nuts too you know nuts are full of protein and eggs too but you know getting the carbs in there and it's really a tasty recipe and quite easy to make so you can see where the protein is coming from in that recipe for sure mm-hmm. over uh, the last little while we've laid the groundwork for our understanding of circadian rhythm um, and that was started off with our show with dr sachin panda very renowned in this area of study. And since then, since him explaining to us and coming on onto the Health Hub, we've come to know its association in a few other areas. One in the area of hormones, and that was brought out in our show with Dr. Kerry Jones. And even in our discussion with Dr. Robert Karlasek, when we spoke about lighting in the healthcare system. And in today's show, we will come to understand how the timing of the administration of chemotherapy drugs, according to one circadian rhythm, can increase both its efficacy and reduce toxicity. It's a fascinating, fascinating area. And just doing a little bit of research to prep for the show is one of the fastest growing areas in uh, cancer research at the moment. So something very, very interesting too. And as you'll know, as we go through the show, something that uh, at this point in time, it's maybe up to the individual to sort of research. It's not right now in um, common practice. So we will get to that. Our guest today is Dr. Robert Burns. Dr. Burns is professor in the Department of Neurobiology and Developmental Sciences College of Medicine at the University of Arkansas for Medical Sciences. He has an extremely impressive CV. He, is, he has received his BA from Hartwick College in New York in 1961. He is a ma- with a major in biology. His master's from the University of Maine in 1963 and his PhD 
from the Department of Anatomy at Tulane University School of Medicine in New Orleans in 1967, with a dissertation in experimental oncology and a minor in human pathology. Dr. Burns then completed a one-year National Institutes of Health postdoctoral fellowship in cancer research and human cancer pathology at George Washington University in Washington, D.C., before joining the University of Arkansas for Medical Sciences. His career research interest is experimental oncology in mouse models, focused on the best time in the host's circadian rhythm to give anti-cancer chemotherapy drugs and produce less organ toxicity and more long-term cures. And this is where the term chronochemotherapy comes up. He has 105 scientific publications, which played a role in mouse-based chronochemotherapy, eventually moving into successful human chronochemotherapy clinical trials by others. His honors include a five-year research career development award from the National Cancer Institute in the 1970s to train in chronobiology under the mentorship of Dr. Lawrence Sheving, Ph.D. He is Distinguished Alumnus Hartwick College, Lutero, and I'm going to get him to um, say that word for me. I don't want to say it wrong. Lutterlow Professor of Medical Education Excellence, Master Teacher and Chancellor's Training Awards at UAMS, He also has publications in the areas of medical student education and professional development in health science content for pre-K to grade 12 teachers and school nurses. Our learning points today will be, what is chronochemotherapy? What is research suggesting about our body clocks and their possible impact on the timing of chemotherapy? What is research suggesting about our body clocks and reducing toxicity of chemotherapy? All of this and so much more we will be talking about when we get back from our break. Not scared to say I used to be the one preaching it to you that you could overcome. I still believe it, but it ain't easy. Cause that world I painted where things just don't work out It started changing And I started having doubts And it got me so down But I I'm 
Listening to Radio Maria Canada. We now continue with the program, The Health Hub, hosted by Kathy Biasi. Welcome back, everybody. As I mentioned before, our show is live. If you'd like to call in, please do at 416-245-1534. We are taking questions on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook at The Health Hub RMC. So if you do have any questions on this amazing topic, please feel free to send them forward. Welcome to the show, Dr. Burns. How are you? I'm fine. That's great. It was uh, such a pleasure talking. We always, I always chat with our guests before the show, um, you know, just so they get a feel of me and so forth. And we had such a great conversation. I just know that it's going to continue on into the show. You've got so much information to give. But let's start off with what drew you to this area of interest in chronochemotherapy? Well, I didn't start out in this field. I started out in experimental embryology. And actually had a Ph.D. level dissertation going on in salamander limb regeneration. And um, I took the sophomore medical student course in pathology and fell in love with the cancer problem. And why don't cancer cells behave? Why can't we kill them uh, better? And um, I I was fortunate enough to, to have Dr. Larry Scaving who was once the president of the International Society for Chronobiology, joined this department two years after I was here. And he basically took me under his wing. Uh, We had the National Cancer Institute Research Career Development Award I did under his mentorship. And that's how I became, I gave up experimental embryology and became, I call myself a cancer nut. A cancer nut. Well, we have a similar interest, that's for sure, with my interest in the area. And I just, I just find it fascinating what you've done. Um, and just before we move on to the show, I, I don't think I said, is it Lutterlow, Professor? Is that the Lutterlow, right? that's Lutterlow. close. Okay, I wanted to make that clear. So Lutterlow, Professor of Medical Education Excellence. So very, very impressive. And I just want to get that out there before we move on. No problem at all. So let's start off from the top, and then we can make our way down to all the wonderful research you've done. What is chronobiology? Uh, that's the study of the dimension of time in all of biology and medicine. And it's a, it's a hard science with statistics, et cetera, like other sciences. It is not the thing they call biorhythms, which have something to do when the, the day you were born or that stuff. This is much, much different than that. And it's become very, very popular. I don't know if you heard the intro, but we've had... Uh, circadian rhythm conversations and, 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 you know, timing is just coming up more and more within um, the health field. And there's a big push on right now from what I'm gathering about chronobiology and research and its importance in biomedical research. And how do you see that application and why do you find that it's so important right now? 
the importance is that, uh, as far as I can remember, the very, very first use of time uh, against cancer and time protect the normal organs from the ravages of the drugs was published in 1972. So it's been around for almost 50 years. And there are tons of experiments with tumor-bearing mice and different drugs, and you can find the best time to treat the cancer. And this has been done many, many, many times. And finally, the very first human chronochemotherapy experiment uh, trial was done and published in 1985. So the clinical work has been around. There are other publications that have followed that one in 1985. Um, so the literature is is replete with uh, examples of how time can be an ally instead of an enemy. And uh, it has gone to clinical trial, and the mouse work for several decades is being brought uh, forth because the clinical trials are exactly proving that the mouse, the original mouse work was, uh, was, was excellent and based in good, hard chronobiology research. Now, I understand, now your focus is, is in uh, cancer, but the work that you're doing, is it applicable in other areas of medicine? And can we, can we extrapolate from your studies that many different kinds of medications should be considered um, according to a biological clock? Oh, yeah. Oh, yes, most definitely. Now, I'm the cancer nut, mm -hmm. but I know other chronobiologists uh, work on the chronotherapy of, for example, the treatment of asthma, the chronotherapy of the treatment of, uh, of hypertension, etc. cetera. Uh, there's even a branch of chronobiology that studies the athletic performance. And there's a whole branch of chronobiology that has shown that there's a time when you perform athletically the best and a time when you perform not so good. And if this is the Olympics, you know, I would, where, where hundreds of a second can mean the difference between gold or not gold, I think um, there are some chronobiologists that are advising uh, athletic teams to pay attention to this, especially when you have to fly across, like from Toronto, let's say, to Seoul, Korea, and then compete. You don't want to be competing competing at your body clock time of at three a.m. in the morning. Uh, you want you want to readjust your body clock to perform uh, your best according to your body clock time. So, does everybody have the same body clock? Is it a human body clock or is it an individual body clock? And if everyone's individual, how do you go about finding everyone's rhythm? Um, <clears throat> the difference is in mice, they are nocturnally active. Uh, humans are the opposite. We say diurnally active, active during the daytime. But um, a lot of the human research, earlier human research, on just rhythms in every uh, thing that the clinical lab can study in blood and urine, uh, what they did, and Dr. Skaving did a lot of this, he was a retired uh, colonel in the U.S. Army. In fact, he served on Patton, General Patton's personal staff during the mm -hmm. Second World War. He would go to Fort Sam Houston, and when the, the uh, regular public showed up for their two weeks 
of boot camp or something like that. They were all synchronized to the social routine there. Now, I can't get my heart started until nine o'clock in the morning, but <laughs> some people get up at <laughs> <laughs> some people get up at five o'clock in the morning and run ten miles or something. Then you know, but well, that would mean that the, the early riser we call them uh, owls and larks, uh, even though they're all active during the daylight hours. Some people get up way much earlier, three four hours before um, the the owl, the night owls do. So in order to, they would not be in really good synchrony. So to put them in good synchrony with a social routine, the Army camp or Boy Scout camp, you know, routine, where they blow the bugle and you have to get up and you have to eat the same meal for two weeks, the, every subject in there would come into synchrony with the social routine. And then after about 10 days, Dr. Scaving and others would take blood, urine, eye-hand coordination, memory, memory tests, and whatnot. All of them have circadian rhythms. But the problem now is... If you want to give chemotherapy to a human, and we have the early risers and the late risers, there's now research going on where they're looking for reference rhythms. It could be body temperature. It could be some hormone level. Uh, for you, when's your peak in body temperature? When's your peak in a certain hormone level? And yours would be three or four hours away from somebody else's. So they're going to personalize this by finding out what your circadian pattern is for you or just you. Instead of trying to do like we would do with mice where we put them on a 12-hour light-dark cycle or take people and put them in an army camp routine. They're now going to go, there's research going on to identify the, the marker rhythm in the human patient that will then dictate when he or she should get there chemotherapy. Okay, so there are a whole bunch of questions popping up in my head. Um, one of the big ones is how can this possibly be applied when you're talking about clinical settings and, you know, nine to five chemotherapy hours? Are right. we talking about opening the doors wide to 24-hour chemotherapy? Or uh, conversely, from what you were saying before, will there be an approach to try and synchronize people's biorhythms to a schedule that is suitable in a clinical setting? I think it's going to be, like I was just saying, personalized. Um, and the amazing thing is, like, uh, the best time for the human to receive 5-fluorouracil, which is a chemotherapeutic drug that stops cell growth in every organ in the body, including including the tumor. Uh, but it really beats up on the host's bone marrow. And humans have a circadian rhythm in the rate of cell growth in their bone marrow, and it reaches a trough level around midnight. So one clinical researcher has taken that information. I've participated in some of this work in the mouse story and uh, has given 5-fluorouracil to people with stage 3 and stage 4 colon cancer uh, in a few hours before and after midnight and not any other time. And they tolerate that drug very well uh, because it's going in to the patient when their 
the host's bone marrow is at its trough, low levels of cell growth. So this lets the drug uh, not hurt the bone marrow and other like the gastrointestinal tract, and, and it allows it to circulate and beat up on the tumors, what I say. And because you can sneak the drugs in at the right time of day, which means less toxicity, which means the less toxicity comes from there's very little cell growth in bone marrow around midnight in humans, you can get more drug in. In fact, uh, that's called the maximum tolerated dose. Uh, and a lot of times, because they give these drugs during the working clinic hours, 9 to 5, the patients suffer excessive toxicity. They can't give the dosage they want to give. The docs can't. Uh, they have to delay the treatment uh, and and uh, let the patient recover, whereas if the same drug at the same dosage at the same level of cancer burden in a patient is going in around, in this particular case, midnight for five fluorouracil, you get much less toxicity. There's... Um, you know, you don't you don't get an infection, you don't get bleeding, et cetera, et cetera. You don't need antibiotics, and um, therefore you can give more drug. Well, how so, do you decipher between? I mean, when you're doing this approach, so we're talking. Let's keep keep with the 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 five fu. The bone marrow is saved, but is that the optimal time if you're dealing with a particular cancer? Are you looking within an organ, let's say? If you're dealing with a cancer within, say, liver, um, is your focus on the rhythm of the liver or do you focus on other things? How do you decipher where your your target focus should be? Uh, there are a whole variety of anti-cancer drugs, and uh, a lot of them, but not all of them, work when the cell tries to divide or duplicate its DNA before it can divide. But there are a whole bunch of other chemotherapeutic agents that that attack other things going on uh, in cells. And every one of those drugs has been uh, its circadian rhythm in resistance, followed by susceptibility, has been worked out in mouse models first. And when you transfer that to the human, you have to remember mice are nocturnally active like possum and raccoons and a bunch of other animals where we are, we humans are diurnally active. So uh, mice tolerate a certain thing at uh, best at 12 noon. Then they're in the middle of their sleep period. That's true for five fluorouracil. That translates into the peak or the middle of the human rest period is at midnight, and that's how they got five fluorouracil to go in at that time. And the way they get it in is they use a programmable pump, which uh, now a lot of clinics have infusion pumps, Mm -hmm. but they deliver the stuff in a steady state, unchanging thing for 24, 48 hours or something. The smart pump can be programmed to deliver five fluorouracil, let's say from 10 p.m. to 3 a.m., and then none after that and that and these people will use up to like four or five different drugs all specifically timed to when the host is most resist the host normal organs are most resistant to that particular drug and these are these times change like adriamycin 
was found out in the mouse work to be, uh, and swapping that over to the human, best tolerated by the human at 6 a.m. Hmm. And, and cisplatinum, another drug, is best tolerated from mouse to man. Man's time turns out to be 6 p.m. Now, midnight, 6 a.m. and 6 p.m., there's three different drugs going into three different circadian times in human cancer patients, and none of those are going in from 9 to 5 when the regular you know, infusion or chemotherapy center is, is open. Fascinating. Okay, we're going to take a quick break here. We come back, we're going to continue the conversation um, with, with Bob, Dr. Burns, on this amazing topic because it's just so important that I think we get our heads around what, what can be going on out there that we just, we just really need to understand. So we'll be right back. Anytime a heart turns from darkness to light Anytime temptation comes and someone stands to fight Anytime somebody lives to serve and not be served I know, I know, I know, I know Hub here on Radio Maria Canada, a Catholic voice wherever you are. To contact us and be a part of the show, please call 416 
2451534. We now continue with the program. Here once again is your host, Kathy Biasi. Welcome back, everybody. We're having a fascinating conversation here about uh, chronobiology, chronochemotherapy, and its application and future applications within the cancer sphere. Dr. Burns, um, question that rolls around in my mind. I mean, we don't know all the machinations and the mechanisms behind cancer. It's a different disease for everybody. But when we're talking about rhythms, does the cancer, the tumor itself, have its own rhythm? And is that identifiable, if so? Uh, I think in general now, uh, the more undifferentiated or unspecialized or more embryonic-like the tumor is, the cancer is, uh, it has lost its ability to, you know, specialize or differentiate, uh, and it's lost a lot of its normal cell functions. It also loses its uh, its circadian rhythmicity. So the the bad tumors, the ones that are uh, undifferentiated, in general now don't have much of a circadian pattern, whereas at the opposite end of the scale, where you have a well-differentiated tumor, although it's cancer, it's just a little bit uh, beyond benign, let's say, a lot of those maintain a a circadian profile. But I think most of chronochemotherapy is aimed at time-protecting the bone marrow and the GI tract and it, um, hair growth too, but um, hair growth is not a threat to life like uh, losing your the lining of your GI tract or having your bone marrow suppressed to the point where you suffer uh, you're at risk of severe infections. <clears throat> so, would the 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 physician, the oncologist at the time, they get the side effects of the particular chemotherapeutic drug that is being used? They would say, or they would determine, or it would be determined what the hardest hit and most toxic area of the body would be, and then work their way backwards. Because we didn't talk about the GI tract, we talked about bone marrow. And I'm going to assume, or or this could be an incorrect assumption, that they have different rhythms? Um, I think they do, but I don't think they're too... The the body, and all the cells in the body can't do everything all at once is part of the problem. Mm-hmm. You know, my analogy would be you don't wash the dog, wash the car, cook supper, and mow the lawn all at the same time. So cells can't do everything that they're supposed to do all at the same time either. So uh, different organs have a maximal rate of cell growth in them, and then a minimal rate, usually that's a peak and a trough in a daily uh, rhythm, usually about 12 hours apart the trough would occur about 12 hours away from when the peak occurred. So um, I think most of the chemotherapy is designed to protect the normal organs from the ravages of the drugs. Uh, I know there are some people working on, I did a little of this myself with a mouse tumor. I tried to take a tumor, mouse tumor, it was a leukemia, that did not have and you have to study, you have to sample every three hours, you know, for at least 24 hours to see this, uh, did not have a circadian pattern to it. And then I used a drug, happened to be 5-fluorouracil, a small dose of it, and I forced it to have a circadian pattern for a day or two. And then if you can get 
the the tumor at a peak level of cell growth at the same time that the normal organs are at trough levels like bone marrow. Well, then you have this 180-degree change between, uh-oh, the tumor's running full tilt, and the normal organs are still protected by being in their trough. In this case, a cell growth uh, uh, situation. You ought to be able, with the tumor out of phase, with the normal organs, you ought to be able to beat up on the tumor, uh, you know, big mm-hmm. time. So if, if an oncologist is having this information set to them, um, they understand what's going on and will stick to the 5-FU drug. They understand circadian rhythms and so forth. The potential for the doctor is on different, different like two or three-fold. Do they want to increase the medication to increase the amount that can get into the system? Are they looking to decrease toxicity? And the other thing that um, I've read about is is talking about giving like when i i personally went through chemotherapy i was once every two weeks i've read since that doctors may be thinking of not doing that two-week lag and trying to do chemotherapy on a quicker basis because it's just it just keeps inundating and inundating the cancer where do you see the greatest benefit for oncologists to get the results that they're looking for or is it a combination Uh uh, I think it's a combination, and the problem is that there are clinical chronochemotherapy researchers uh, at work, you know, right now, and they publish their findings. But I don't think any of this, uh, from a cancer research point of view, has made it into um, the guidelines that your average, you know, chemotherapist, oncologist in private practice. Uh, uses they usually follow guidelines like from the National Cancer Institute or NIH things like that so they usually um, follow the guidelines so what has to happen I think is that this information is slowly but surely going I think maybe before I die I don't know make it into clinical guidelines where you should pay attention to uh, uh, to this bio, bio, uh, biological rhythm, circadian rhythm stuff. You know, I hope your audience knows that uh, last year in 19, I mean, um, 2017, the Nobel Prize was given to three U.S. scientists who worked in fruit flies, but they worked on the, the, the mechanism of how the biological clock works. Now, that's quite an honor for them, but also for the body clock, they, they uh, to be recognized with the Nobel Prize. I don't see how anybody cannot go. Oh my! Wow, the Nobel Prize was given for body clock types of research. Must be something important here. And I'm going to assume the holdup is just in its practical application. Say again. I'm going to assume the holdup of getting this into clinic is in its practical applications. Yes. Okay. Yeah. Uh, I gave a talk recently, Grand Rounds, at our our Department of Health, and although I don't do this kind of research, I have a few PowerPoint slides that show uh, uh, hypertension and the the chronotherapy for hypertension. And one of the the physicians over there said, but this is not in the American Society of Blood Pressure or whatever was guidelines as to how we're supposed to treat 
patients. And I said, well, you're looking at the research that is coming and hopefully will get in to these guidelines. But right now they practice according to the guidelines. That's what they're supposed to do. I think if they didn't, they might be in legal trouble. So it's a it's an interesting ball game, an athletic match, to have the research finally make it into um, the guidelines that they should uh, uh, use when when they practice. You know, they roll, they get upset when they say, "Oh my God, I'm not going to have a nurse give five fluorouracil at you know midnight." That's just that just won't work. Well, it will if you use the smart pump. And this is this isn't. We're not talking about increased dosage we're not talking about all we're talking about is timing yeah but with the right kind of timing you can get uh, like five fluorouracil you can get a 50 percent increase in the dosage uh, in the human trials because you're giving it when the bone marrow is at trough levels so you now can give more and you still don't hurt the bone marrow because it's at trough levels this allows that drug to circulate and beat up, beat up on the on the tumor. Okay, so you're getting fifty percent more. Mm-hmm. You can theoretically stop chemotherapy treatments earlier. The lump sum has to be. Um, I mean, you're, you're you're you've got workers that don't have to do the application of chemotherapy fifty percent less. It the it just doesn't seem logical to me why this isn't being applied. It just well, me doesn't. neither. Me neither. But. Uh, before stuff makes it to the Nobel Prize and beyond, we're looking at, remember the first mouse chemotherapy, chronochemotherapy experiment was published in the top journal in the world, Science, in 1972. So it takes decades to get it through the mouse test system over into human clinical trial, and it takes another couple of decades to, to amass enough information there to, I'm going to say, finally make it into the guidelines that every practitioner should, a clinical oncologist should should follow. Is it being, now we're talking the U.S., but is it being applied in any hospital setting at all right now? Uh, I've only, only probably in a research setting. Now, I'm not a clinician. You know, I'm a mm-hmm. mouse doctor. <laughs> and, uh, uh, I know there are clinicians uh, that have published, like, uh, uh, 30 clinical trials have been tried by one group uh, in England where they've gotten excellent results, the same as what you would get with mice, only now they've moved it over into human research. Uh, so the story continues to build, and I think sooner or later, uh, one, way to, one way to get the uh, medicine to change is to have the public be educated about mm-hmm. the dimension of time. Exactly. Now, there are uh, chemotherapy, there are a lot of different types of chemotherapy, immune chemotherapy, all that. And I'm sure, you know, we won't even get into the immunotherapies that are coming out now and how they might be um, so readily used, according to the chronobiological clock. But the, the delivery mechanisms of chemotherapy, if people understood, uh, let's back up a bit, where can people look for this research? Or are there books or are there, you know, is there a clock that is out there that can say, you know, these sort of medications are best given at this time? Um, Let's see. There's a book called The Body Clock. It was published in 2000 or 2001 by Mike Smolensky. And it has, it's called The Body Clock, A Guide to Better Health. 
and he he goes through the hormones, cancer, athletic performance, ultra crises, you name it. They're all in there, and of course they have the scientific references to it. But to ask the people, the public, to read the scientific, you know, publications is is kind of like not fair. However, the latest issue of Scientific American, the September issue, has an article on uh, the biological clock and how it works and some of the problems that basic scientists get into because they only sample routinely once a day. Mm-hmm. And you have to sample every three hours. My analogy would be... Um, if you want to watch your favorite hockey game up there in Canada or the Super Bowl here or in Europe, the World Cup soccer match, and you have your choice of one still photograph taken sometime during the event, see, that would be single time point sampling. Mm-hmm. Or do you want to watch a video? Well, you want to watch the video. Nobody says they want one picture. They all want the video. Uh, well, the video translates into multiple time point samplings during one 24-hour period. In our lab here, it's every three hours. So we repeat an experiment, uh, just studying cell growth or studying toxicity in mice. We do the same experiment every three hours for at least 24 hours. And then and only then will you see the effect of the, of the body rhythm that you're working with or against well, we can't, you know, we can't really translate and give give the information that you know research and a lot of medications, chemotherapy drugs are given orally, and um, a person is taking them at home. Correct. Are are we at a place where we can get people to do some research, and if they have some wiggle room in the timing of their medication, is that a start, or are we even there yet? No, I think that's a start. And there are, in my own jars of pills that I take because I'm pushing 80 years old, none of them say, except for my eye drops, they say take in the evening or the morning. No one ever puts on the label, take at you know midnight or take at 12 noon. That's not there yet. Uh, so there's a branch of chronobiology called chronopharmacology mm-hmm. where they study the interactions of drugs with normal physiological systems. And, for example, I'm remembering, now I don't do this research, but the bioavailability in the bloodstream for some antibiotics is hugely circadian stage dependent. So you can give an expensive antibiotic and have it have a minimal effect, uh, and then you can give the same antibiotic at the best time, and it'll have a maximal effect on the bacteria there's a well, you know, even mosquitoes, fruit flies, uh, every living organism has a biological clock. In fact, um, the human clock is the same as the mouse clock, basically, which is the same as the bacterial biological clock. So the clock has been conserved uh, over millions of years of evolution to be a good working system. So bacteria, mice, humans, all wear sort of the same wristwatch. That's fascinating. It's genetically determined. It's there in the genes. Which gives us a real understanding. Immunotherapy. Yeah, immunotherapy. um, 
that's that's a coming thing, and that's great because there's very specific uh, specificity in the immune system about attacking cancer cells. But I'm going to bet that uh, if you don't use the immunotherapy at the right circadian time, you're missing the boat. Mm-hmm. And I know that uh, in the British Journal Vaccine, I saw an article where they gave the flu vaccine. This was a couple of years ago. Uh, to it was a not a good chronobiology study because they did a group of patients in the morning and a group in the afternoon. They got four times as much antibody produced when they gave the flu vaccine in the morning, but they didn't do it at, at uh, you know six p.m., nine p.m., midnight, which would be a real chronobiological study. So I'm going to bet that when immunotherapy arrives at the clinic, uh, the time to give it might not be at 12 noon. It might be at midnight. Mm. It's going to be there, I guarantee. I'll bet my life on the fact that there's a circadian rhythm in the response to immunotherapy, just like there is a circadian rhythm in response to when you give 5-fluorouracil, adriamycin, or cisplatinum, or 900 other anti-cancer drugs. And this carries on into other diseases, correct? I mean, you did mention when we were talking previously um, hypertension. Uh-huh. Now, maybe just so people can, you know, grab on to this, hypertension is probably something that affects um, many of our listeners as well. But mm-hmm. can you just go over that, um, what we were talking about, about blood viscosity and hypertension and medication? Um. I know there are clinical trials where they, uh, and I think, uh, now if, they, if the clinical trial is not done right, you don't find what is really there. You have to do the clinical trial uh, correctly. And this brings to mind that the uh, chronobiology people have plotted the circadian rhythm in myocardial infarction, heart attack. Mm-hmm. And most heart attacks occur around 9 o'clock in the morning. Um, but other people have tried to repeat that, and what they did was they just recorded the time of admission to the emergency room. Well, somebody has the signs and symptoms of a, of a let's say, a mild heart attack, and they think it's indigestion. So they don't they don't go to the ER for eight hours or so. So when you interview the patients as to when you first noticed chest pain or the pain in your arm or whatever discomfort you had. Uh, oh, well, it was right after breakfast or something. And then when did you go to the ER? Well, I didn't go in there until about 4 in the afternoon. You can't record when they arrive in the ER. You have to record when the signs and symptoms uh, showed up first. So most heart attacks, now that doesn't mean all heart attacks occur at 9 o'clock in the morning, but statistically significantly more heart attacks occur at 9 o'clock in the morning. And you want to say, well, now why? Well, guess what? The blood pressure reaches its peak about 9 o'clock in the morning. The platelets in the blood, which are involved in blood clotting, they are, uh, they are the stickiest. Their adhesiveness reaches a peak at around 9 o'clock in the morning. The coronary blood flow is very sluggish. It reaches a trough in blood flow at 9 o'clock in the morning. And the natural ability of the blood to bust clots away once they form is at its trough. Well, there's four things. Some are up to peak and some are down at trough that contribute to, oh, gee, heart attacks. More of them occur at 9 o'clock in the morning. And the same is true for stroke. 
So I know that the people that are studying the chronotherapy of hypertension are dealing with, uh, in one study, now I don't do this research, but in one study I read they had the pill with the verapamil in it, which is an antihypertensive, and they had it coated with three or four different coats so you could take it when you went to bed and the coats slowly disappeared and let out this drug around 5 a.m. In order to prevent the rise in blood pressure, uh, normally you can't take you can't take a pill at, at, uh, uh, just before the blood pressure is going to reach a peak. You have to get way ahead of it. So they, they, they made a drug that released it uh, on time after you take it at bedtime. And I think that trial, there have been several, turned out to be successful. But there, there the pharmacology is antihypertensive, but they're giving it in a chronobiological fashion. It's fascinating. Um, and, mm-hmm. and just, you know, we're coming to the end of the show. What my okay. takeaway is from what you've um, presented to us is where we have leeway in our medications. It is well worth the effort to find out where we sit within the biological clock as far as this medication is concerned. And I know it's not out there mainstream, but there are areas where can people look? Do you have, do you have places that people can go and look and just, you know, get the wheel of their circadian rhythm and biological clock and just play around with medication times. I mean, I think that's, that's as far as we can go right now, right? Until we're in clinic. Uh, yes. And the, the, that book, the, the body clock, the body by clock. Smolensky, now okay. it's, it's, it's kind of old, but I don't know if your audience, you know, goes to the library and looks up. This is not fair to, to people in general that to see the scientific publications, some of which I have trouble reading. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, for sure. But, but the general the general idea, there's other books, um, the Biological Rhythmicity. There's several books, and there's, there's that one in the September issue of Scientific American. But there are two other uh, 2014, there was an article on biological rhythms in Scientific American, and that that gets fairly specific with data. But those authors, those those reporters, have a way of writing it to where the general public, if you pay attention, can understand it. And other than that, I don't know of where um, you go and see a list of uh, when's yeah. the best time to do this and yeah. do that. I know I gave a lecture at the Danish Cancer Research Institute oh, 20 years ago about this stuff, and their chemotherapists were saying, well, we sort of do this because we tell the patients to take the drug that we've prescribed, uh, play with the time of day they take it, and find out for yourself when it it's not so toxic, when you're not throwing up or when you're not you know, having diarrhea or something. Mm-hmm. So they were sort of saying they were doing it, but I think medicine needs to take the lead and yes. show show how well, to do this. It's correctly. it's you know if if you know we've got put a lot on the table, we've learned a lot today, and if nothing else, everybody you know put the time and effort into researching this. It can make a huge huge difference in your health. Dr. Burns, thank you so much for joining us. Thank fascinating, you. fascinating conversation. And everybody, we will join you next week on the Health Hub.
You have been listening to The Health Hub, hosted by Kathy Biasi, here on Radio Maria Canada.